and also John chapter 17. John 17, and be prepared to go to Luke chapter 19. As I was studying, preparing this message, I believe the Lord had me take a little bit of a turn, and you'll see that towards the end of the message this morning, God willing. A common question that is asked by a potential new member of a church or maybe even within a congregational meeting, perhaps, is what is the vision or your vision for the church? Or a common phrase that is used, which I cannot stand, is vision casting. Maybe some of you heard that before. Sounds kind of weird in my perspective. This question, it can be helpful. What is the vision for the church? But there is a way more important question to be asked. What vision does Christ have for his church? It is his church after all. He died for his church. He shed his blood for his church. Much of the answer to this question is found in John chapter 17. We acknowledge that the church belongs to Jesus Christ purchased with his blood. So his vision of how his church must be is to be primary. There are several marks of his church that are found in John 17. Some of these are the unity of his people. We looked at that. His joy within his people. We looked at that. The truth which sanctifies his people, which we will see, and the mission of his people, which we will also see. But one that is left out oftentimes, but that is right before our very eyes in John 17 is the holiness of his people. The holiness of his people. We are to be The title of this message, not of the world, not of the world. That indeed is our first point this morning as we are in John poised to turn to Luke. I'll pray and ask for God's help. Father, once again, I pray that you would give me help from the Holy Spirit, that you would help me to preach your word. I'm a weak vessel. I come behind this pulpit needing to completely rely upon you, and the hearers need to be relying upon you to change their hearts where needed. Give us ears to hear, hearts pliable to change. And give me unction from on high. In Jesus' name, amen. 
we pick up here in verse 14 in chapter 17 for right now. Where Jesus says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. We have seen this before that the disciples of Jesus Christ indeed in this world will be hated <coughs> excuse me by the world <coughs> excuse me all of a sudden I have a cough <coughs> the word the entire message that has been revealed thus far to them <coughs> consider what the disciples had been doing while they were with Jesus. They were learning of God, learning to follow Christ, learning to be not of this world. The inevitable conclusion of this is that the world would oppose them and the world will oppose you as well as you follow Jesus Christ. Jesus is praying to his Father acknowledging that the world has hated his disciples. This reinforces the idea that this is not an opinion that the world will hate Christians. I've mentioned to this, and I've put this before you time and, and time again in sermon after sermon, but Jesus says it, indeed it is fact. Why? Because those who follow Jesus Christ are not like the world. A radical change has taken place. Go to Luke chapter 19 at this time, please. We're going to be back to John. <clears throat> Luke chapter 19. <clears throat> Consider a radical change that takes place when one becomes a Christian. Therefore, they are hated by the world because they are no longer like the world. The leper in Luke chapter 5 was cleansed by the Lord. He was changed, no longer a leper. This is a picture of regeneration. In Luke chapter 19, we have Zacchaeus before us. Let's look at this. Chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> Jesus, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, and he was unable to because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down, and he received him gladly. <clears throat> when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. The ones who are saying this, of course, had thought that they were all good with God. And then they see this tax collector who was defrauding people coming to Jesus Christ. And, of course, they had a problem with this. Zacchaeus stopped, verse Eight, he stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, 
And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. This is a picture of repentance. This is a picture of what happens to a man who has been converted, who has defrauded people. And he is saying, this is what I have done. And this is what I'm willing to do. Jesus says, verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Zacchaeus was changed. He was not like the world anymore. He did not go back to his defrauding ways. Just as the leper did not go back who was cleansed and say, you know what? I want to have these leprous spots all over me again and have this disease anymore. Saul of Tarsus, converted, regenerated. He was a persecutor of Christians, held the coat for those who, wanted, who would murder Christians. He was right there. Yet he was saved by Christ, redeemed by Christ, and transformed by Christ. He did not go back doing what he was doing before. He was not like the world any longer. Brother Rich mentioned this morning, as I overheard as I was in my office there, because he took Sunday school, because I had several things I had to do, and it would be beneficial for him to take it, because I had to teach three times today with a book study as well. And so I punted to Rich, or he said, as I heard, he, I, that I pawned it off to him in a joking way. <clears throat> but if I told you this week I got hit by a truck, a Mack truck, and then got run over by it as well, and it was going very fast. And it hit me. But here I am. He would say, you're crazy or you're a liar. How much more so when someone has an encounter with the one true God by conversion and it's changed. Or one says, I have been converted and there is no change. John the Baptist preached repentance. Jesus preached repentance. The apostles in Acts chapter 2 preached repentance. Those who were converted were no longer of the world. And many were used to turn the world upside down. And that's what we're called to do, Christian. The people who were radically changed by God, by the power of the gospel, with the Holy Spirit, were not of the world once they were converted. They stayed in the world. They lived in the world, but they were not like the world any longer. That could no longer be their description. They have a new master now, Jesus Christ. Can you say that of yourself this morning? Or are you still like the world? Or do you live with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God? Jesus says, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. 
The point is from before, if you have had an encounter with God by the way of him converting you, radical change of heart, it will be evident and people will know. Just that is that it will be evident if you got hit by a vehicle. People would say, wow, I can see that. His disciples, he says, also are not of the world. They were born in this world just as we are born in this world, yet they were born again, as Jesus explained in John 3. The only way to be not of this world is to be born again. Those who are born again do not belong to the world and will not live like the world any longer. So the first part, we are not to be like the world. We are not of the world. Secondly, holiness in this world. Holiness in this world. As we turn back to John 17, Christ calls his disciples. He calls us to be defined by unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We looked at that. Be defined by having his joy, not any other joy, but his joy, not joy we find in the world, and holiness. Well, where does it say that here? Where is the word holiness? Well, it says here we're not to be like the world. The Bible calls believers to holiness. Synonyms of holiness are saint or sanctify. What is a saint? Is it one who has a, a special class and a special class of goodness? Like we say, oh, we're a Christian here, but he's a, he's a real saint. He's a true saint. No. A saint is one who has been called by God and set apart by God. All Christians are called saints, the ones called out by God. Paul makes this clear in his introduction to Romans, 1 Corinthians, and Ephesians, and others. And we see in verse 19, which we are not getting to this morning, but we see what Jesus says, For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they, may, they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. This does not mean that Jesus makes himself more righteous. He is righteous. It means he has been separated by God to do something, namely providing himself as a sacrifice for sin. He does this so that his followers also are sanctified, set apart in truth. So why pray for that which we already have? Why would the Lord pray for this that we would already have? The answer is that we fail to live up to that calling oftentimes. And we go back to our trailing clouds of old commitments, old loyalties, old ways. Thus far, Jesus has prayed for his consecration. We saw that in verse 1 through 5. His being set apart as he prepares to go to the cross. He prays to the Father. Then he begins to pray for his people, including, again, unity and joy, and for the holiness of his people, being separate from the world, being set apart to God, and being sanctified 
in the truth. There are, however, threats to the holiness of God's people. Things or people that get in the way of the holiness we are called to. First threat that we find here in the scripture, in this portion, in John 17, the first threat is hatred from the world. Hatred from the world. Jesus explained this to the disciples in John 15 as part of his farewell address. You can read that again in John 15, verse 16 through 25. Now in his prayer, he is bringing this to the Father. His disciples are no longer like the world. They have been given God's word. They responded to it and have been born again. They have eternal life. What is true of them is true of us as well. Dangers that they face are dangers that we face. The world, which rejects us as believers, resents us as believers, wants to draw us back to sin, do they not? Don't some of us even have family members who are not Christians, who are hostile to the things of the Lord, who really want nothing to do with us? Or if they do, they want to bring us back to who we used to be. Or friends or co-workers. Or could it be that some of you here are so worldly that you cannot be a threat to your non-Christian friends? Do they see a significant difference between you and the world? Or do they see someone who goes to church on Sundays but still talks like the world, dresses like the world, participates as the world participates, and does things that they do with no difference? That indeed is not Christianity. That is not a radical heart change like Zacchaeus or like the leper who was cleansed. The second threat is found in the latter part of verse 15, where Jesus says, I do not ask that you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Now, scholars debate this back and forth, that this refers to evil in general, which we would say, well, where does that come from? Well, it comes from the evil one anyway. Or it refers to Satan himself, the evil one. From my studies, I see that the definite article is here, just as it is in 1 John chapter 5, so it is the evil one. It makes sense in my mind that this is referring to the devil himself. He is called the evil one in 1 John 3, verse 12, and in 1 John 5 and verse 19, John says, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So that is indeed a threat. He is a threat to our holiness. And we can't outwit him. He's got many means at his disposal, many devices. We can't outsmart someone who's been studying 
behavior of Christians for thousands of years. Who does not rest, who does no good, but seeks to sift us like wheat. And some may say going to church once a week and listening to a sermon is going to do anything. And that is it. That's going to do anything to defeat the evil one. If you believe that and that's all you do, you're deceived and he will gain victory over you each and every time. Satan delights in corrupting the church from within as well. An overthrow with worldly values. Doesn't have to be someone who comes in who, uh, that's a strong man or whatever that's going to take people down. It just has to come in subtly. Worldly values. This is a great threat. Being assimilated into evil ways of the world that are influenced by the evil one, Satan. <clears throat> so the first threat is hatred from the world. Second threat is the God, lowercase g, of this world. And the third threat to our holiness, to the holiness of a believer that we are called to, is being like the world. Being like the world. And let me read to you uh, from Richard Phillips' commentary this morning. He says, Consider the way that churches and Christians are easily led into the materialism of our worldly culture. We see this tendency in the way that churches today typically measure success in materialistic ways. Numbers of people, impressive buildings, and stockpiles of cash, often with little concern for faithfulness to the Bible, reverence to God, or holy living. The grossest example in the church today is probably, he says, the prosperity gospel movement that makes material wealth practically the chief benefit of Christian salvation. More widespread is the situation forewarned some years ago by Francis Schaeffer. Some of you remember Francis Schaeffer, who worried that evangelical Christians primarily desire personal peace and enough money to enjoy it, not really caring about God or others. James Boyce cites a newspaper cartoon that was humorous in large part because it contained so much truth. The cartoon showed Two pilgrims crossing to America on the Mayflower. One says to the other, religious freedom is my immediate goal, but my long-range plan is to go into real estate. Today, America has large Christian denominations that are so materialistic that they literally care more for holding on to real estate than for holding on to God's saving truth. We can multiply the isms that threaten the compromise to compromise Christ's church today. There is the relativism that has caused so many professing Christians to compromise on biblical doctrines. There is the sensualism of Hollywood-style entertainment in the place of biblical worship. There is the humanism of secular scholarship that denies the Bible's teaching on creation, gender, sexuality, and more. And the consumerism that some churches are importing from the advertising world of Madison Avenue. Jesus prays that his church would be kept by the Father from the ways of the world and the evil one so that his church may be holy. End quote. So my question for us, are we as a local church becoming more godly 
or more worldly? Are we becoming more holy, more faithful to the scriptures, more reverent in our worship, and more reverent for the Lord's day? Or do we look at other things and say, wow, success here. The attendance and participation of the times of the prayer meetings of the church say a lot about a church and where much of the reliance and the focus is on. If we're not depending on the Lord through prayer, who are we depending on then? In verse 16, Jesus repeats the verse 14. Look at 16. Again, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. In other words, hey, this is right after he prays, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. In other words, leave them in the world. Leave them in the world. To do what? To live in the world, but to not be like the world. And as we live in this world, we'll not to be isolationists and form this, these separatist communions or communities like the Amish. Instead, we are to engage the world or let the world engage you. Which will it be? Three important figures in the scriptures pray to be removed from the world. I've prayed that before. God, just kill me now, please. Or just take me out, Lord, I can't take this anymore. Whatever it may be throughout your life. Maybe none of you have ever prayed that. Many of you probably have. You just wouldn't admit it. I say things most people won't say or admit to. Three important figures in the scripture pray to be removed from the world. Moses, Elijah, and Jonah. And the answer to these prayers was a absolute no. Why? Because God had something for them to do. And he was going to be glorified through each one of them. God kept them in the world for his purpose and his glory. Here in John 17, Jesus is saying basically the same thing. They are not of the world. This tells us point blank that we are to be different from the world. We are to not be like the world. Consider this month that we're in October. Reformation month also has a ha uh, Halloween coming up. Now there's various perspectives on Halloween. This is a sidebar example for us. Wherever your perspective is, wherever you land on that day, on the 31st, it is a grand opportunity for individuals to get the gospel in the hands of many. Or you could hunker down. That is an opportunity to engage the world. I mean, this perspective of October 31st is getting more evil and more demonic each and every year. I mean, I've lived a few years. I've seen it get worse and worse and worse. Are we going to let that engage us, or are we going to go engage that with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And how does that look? It's different for everybody. Start getting the gospel into the hands of those. 
in James Boyce's commentary, he gives four ways in which the church and Christians tend to become more like the world. And I borrowed these four from him and I added to my own, my own uh, uh, subheadings underneath them. So he says, he gives us four, and the details are mine. <clears throat> four ways which the church and the Christians individually tend to become more like the world. Well, the church begins to embrace the world's wisdom, right? The church begins to embrace the world's wisdom. And Psalm 1 speaks on that. We just read that and we say, just that Psalm alone, we say we should not listen to the world's wisdom. The world is seeking to disciple us every single day, right? TV, internet, radio, whatever it may be, social media. So are we allowing the world to disciple us? Well, someone's discipling each and every one of us. And if God's word is not discipling us and sermons are not discipling us throughout the week or we're not reading biblical books throughout the week, then who is discipling us individually? Secondly, the church is in danger to become more like the world when it embraces the world's theology such as the world believes that man is basically good or that gender roles do not matter and now that gender does not matter, that sin is no longer sin, it's just a disorder or whatnot. Salvation has to do with liberating society rather than getting right with the one true God. That's the world's theology. Third, adopting the world's agenda. News commentators or politicians say something, it becomes a trend. It becomes a movement. And it becomes, uh, for those who are undiscerning, even as believers or professing believers, they fall prey and buy into it. Isn't this true? We're told who to love and who to hate and how to do it by the world. And then you hear these parodying phrases, especially by young people, and they haven't got a clue. They're like 26 and still living in the basement. And they haven't done anything in their life, and yet they're going to be out there chanting with a bullhorn. And they haven't even studied these issues. It's ridiculous. But people will listen to them and clap their hands at them and then repeat this mantra. And they call Christians the Kool-Aid drinkers. It's absolutely incredible. Fourthly, adopting the world's methods. Growing a church by man-centered entertainment or consumer-driven campaigns. Instead, we are called to use God's method and God's way, which is the word of God and prayer. The word of God and prayer. So we are to live in this world, not to be of the world, and we are to engage and impact the world by being different from the world. We cannot redeem the culture, but we can engage and impact the culture. The world is described by Paul as the present evil age. This world is consigned to judgment and will be destroyed, ultimately. Currently, the world is under the power of the evil one. But we must 
heed what Scripture says. In 2 Corinthians, I'll just read it for you. I planned to go there, then I said, no, I won't go there, and now I said, yes, I will. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I'll just read it. You'll, know, you'll be familiar with the passage when I read it. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. So consider that as we live in this world. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We consider that mindset as we engage in this world. And as 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, not to be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? For what fellowship has light and darkness? Don't we have such great examples in scriptures of men who stood, such as Daniel? Daniel, his friends, refused to bow to the image and would not worship the idol. Daniel went on his normal prayer life when a royal, royal decree was in place forbidding his prayer. And God supernaturally saved him when he was thrown to the lion's den. So we're not to be of the world. We're to live in holiness in this world. And there's threats to our uh, holiness in this world, the threats of the world, such as hatred from the world the enemy of our souls, which is the, the God, lowercase g, of this world, Satan. And third is, is being like the world. Example of a worldly church. This is where I believe the Lord took me in going this direction for the rest of this study. Go to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14. <clears throat> Example of a worldly church. Jesus' message to the lukewarm church of Laodicea. This is the final message of seven churches, actual churches in Asia Minor. And Jesus had something good to say about each one of them except for this one. See in verse 14. Well, let me give you a little background first. The area was known, this area here with Laodicea, for its school of medicine, specifically uh, for eye diseases. Can you imagine that? Back then they were even treating or trying to treat eye diseases. Also known for its soft black wool, which was used to make luxurious garments. Also, it was a center of finance and banking. Banking, not baking, banking. Is a very wealthy city, yet it had no water supply, no natural water supply. So water had to be brought in from an aqueduct system from a town six miles away. So consider that and remember that. I'll come back to that. They were proud of their self-sufficiency, yet the scripture says God is opposed to the proud. And pride comes before the fall. Let's just read this beginning in verse 14. 
to the angel of the church in Laodicea writes, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And then he gives the remedy. We'll stop there for a moment. When John penned this letter to the church of Laodicea, they had become self-satisfied, self-righteous, and spiritually lukewarm. Nothing favorable to say for this church. Things to consider when we, the response of the Lord to this. Disgust, and then a remedy. Disgust, and then a remedy. First, we notice how Jesus refers to himself. The Amen. Jesus is the great amen of God, this verbal seal. A faithful and true witness, without error, the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, he is indeed trustworthy. The beginning of creation of God, everything exists because of him. And Colossians 1 tells us that all things began with him, exist through him, and end in him. And Jesus gives the the church a description, lukewarm, neither cold nor hot. Listen to Joel Beakey on his commentary of this. The picture arises from local circumstances. The nearby town of Colossae, Colossae enjoyed delicious cool water. Another town a few miles away, Herodopolis, boasted hot springs believed to have medicinal purposes or medicinal properties. However, the Laodiceans only had the tepid flow that passed through miles of aqueducts to drink. So considering those two, one town had cold water, which was good, which was refreshing. One town had the hot springs, which was good, which was medicinal. Both good, hot and cold. Both useful. But the Laodicean church is no better than its water. Rather than bringing a healing, which is hot, a refreshment, which is cold, the church had become useless and was disgusting in the sight of the Lord. So Christ says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Throw up. I could use other adjectives that are coming to my mouth now, but my head now, but I won't, of that word to get the point across. But the spiritual state of Laodicea church made Christ nauseous. Why would Jesus prefer them to be cold rather than lukewarm? Well, when we consider the text, honoring with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. And consider the text, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but not do what I say? He says they are neither hot nor cold, they are lukewarm. The mindset of being wealthy, needing of nothing. In reality, he says, though in verse 17, 
You do not know you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You are neither hot nor cold. He says, I wish that you were cold or hot. He urges them. He desires that they would be cold or that they would be hot. This passage has been taught that the Lord desires you to be either hot, like on fire for God, or cold, which is cold-hearted towards God, unzealous, etc. Why in the world would the Lord want that? Wish for someone in a church to be cold towards him in that way. Both extremes, as I just mentioned, if you consider those two uh, cities, hot or cold are both positive. Instead, he says, though you are lukewarm. Lukewarm water was not easy to drink. The hot springs provided medicinal, medicinal help, healing, cold water, refreshing water, soothing. Laodicean church, you are lukewarm just like your water. You make one want a gag. You make one want a vomit. That is exactly what the Lord says. Their spiritual state, the way that they lived, made the Lord want to vomit. He's not saying here that it is better that you have no love for me, cold, than mediocre love for me, lukewarm. As I mentioned, coldness of heart is dangerous. Instead of being hot, providing spiritual health, Healing spiritually or cold, refreshing and, and soothing, you are lukewarm, making the Lord want to vomit. This is the diagnosis. The main issue, they lost their zeal for Christ, or they never had it in the first place. Or as Paul says, that they have a form of godliness, but although they have denied its power. We're not called to mindless zeal which would be carnal and uh, fanatical. We're called to do what the scripture says in Romans 12. By the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, which is in contrast to living like the world. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the word of God, so that you may prove what the will of God is. But the main point of what Jesus says here, the main point of this text, the message to Laodicea, I believe, is in verse 17. Look at their disposition. I am rich, I am wealthy, I have need for nothing. Who says this type of thing, if we consider this spiritually speaking? Be a lost person, or someone who has gone astray, or someone who lives like the world. The focus of the rebuke is on their pride and self-sufficiency. Rather than being poor in spirit, they were impressed and proud of themselves. As we would say, breaking their arm, patting themselves on the back. They were worldly and self-sufficient, and therefore they could not see that they were wretched or afflicted, miserable, blind to their needs, and poor, having nothing, blind, not seeing their spiritual need, and naked, 
not clothed in his robes. Listen to Beaky once again. A self-satisfied church preaches the gospel of grace to needy sinners, but lives as if it has no spiritual needs. It tells people that they are guilty sinners, but acts as if it had no guilt of its own for Christ's blood to cover. It calls people to pray for salvation, but cannot rouse itself to come to prayer meetings to cry out for divine mercies. A self-satisfied church is a living contradiction to the gospel of Christ. And the Lord says, if you go on like this, I will spit you out of my mouth. So what is the remedy for this? Well, Jesus provides the remedy for this. Of course, this is how our God is. The Redeemer. He says, verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Buy these things of me, says the Lord. Well, how much does it cost? We would ask. Our sin and our pride is the answer. Exchange what you are relying on. Individual in here perhaps this morning. Exchange what you are relying on to the riches of Christ. These things are obviously symbolic. Gold, white garments, and eye salve. But he says, Christ says to buy, to take action for this real gold that he provides. Not fool's gold or fake gold, but this real gold. Refined by fire, being transformed to the image of Christ, being unlike the world, coming to him as spiritual beggars, and he gives spiritual riches. White garments, clothed in his righteousness. In his righteousness alone, the only way that nakedness can be covered is by his robes. Wear his garments. Refuse the dingy garbs of this world. And I salve. Your eyes have become dim. The smoke, the haze, the cloudiness, perhaps of your sin, has made it difficult to see. Christ gives sight to the blind. The Holy Spirit gives believers more and more understanding, more and more sight. In Acts chapter 26, verse 18, it says, Jesus told Paul he is sending him to the lost to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness from their sin. Again, the main issue here with the the church of Laodicea, they lost their zeal for Christ or they had no zeal for Christ. They came to church, brought family to church, looked more to their watch than to their Bible. Like Peter could not stay awake for an hour. 
probably timid in their witness, unmotivated about prayer, indifferent to the sick and imprisoned, and self-centered in their hoarding of resources. The remedy for us, or for any of us individually, is found in verse 18. I advise from you to buy this of me, he says. We need doctrine, we need teaching. The Laodiceans drew their attitude from secular culture around them. And if we're not careful, we're prone to do the same thing. It was a sophisticated culture. Our culture in some ways is sophisticated, in other ways not so much. whether it be patriotism or pleasure-seeking, becoming preoccupied too much with earthly kingdoms in those. We must be on guard to not adopt the spirit of this age. He's, Jesus says in verse 19, those who I love, I reprove and discipline. So if you're a child of God this morning, God loves you in a way that he does not love the lost, he loves you in a way that he reproves you and he will discipline you. And therefore, he says, be zealous and repent. And then in verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the heart, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. This scripture is one that has been misused many times. I've misused it in my early days as a Christian. There is no mention of the word heart in this verse, first off. Did we see that again? The verse does not say, ask Jesus into your heart. Asking Jesus into your heart is not biblical language. The context is the church having pushed Christ outside of it, having closed the door on him. And as individuals, we can do this as well. The call is to those in the church that are lukewarm. Christ knocking to those who are his, but those who have turned aside from him, shut him out of their complacent, self-satisfied, worldliness, being like the world, and he is knocking. For those of you who are in Christ this morning, if you hear that knock, do not avoid it. Open that door, if I can say that. If you're not a Christian this morning, when Jesus comes into your life, He'll kick down that door and he will radically change your life and it will be obvious. You will not live like you did anymore. Will you still sin? Yes, you will, absolutely. You will not love God as you ought to each and every day of your life to begin with, not to mention the sin that you will continue to have in your life. But it will be obvious. We're to be not of the world, 
We are to live holy in this world. There are threats against us in this world. There's hatred from the world. There is the devil who is in this world. And there is being like the world, which we are not to be. And then there is the example in Revelation chapter 3 of what a worldly church may look like. Charles Spurgeon says, Take care of giving up your first zeal. Beware of cooling in the least degree. You were hot and earnest once. Be hot and earnest still. And let the fire which once burned within you still animate you. Be still, men and women of might and vigor. Men and women who serve the God with diligence and zeal. Let us pray. Father, you sent your son Jesus Christ to die for sinners like us. He is in the business of changing hearts. He radically transforms lives. He is the heart examiner. And perhaps this morning, He has indeed struck again in that ministry. Perhaps some of us in here need to heed this and get alone with you, O God. Only you know the hearts in here, O Lord. And we would pray and we would ask you, O Lord, that we be not like the world, And we pray and we ask, Lord, that this message to the church of Laodicea is not a message for us. It is a warning for us. And if it is a message for us, God, let us heed it. And if it's a warning to us, Lord, let us heed it. If it's for us individuals, God, help us to heed it. We want to live for your glory. Help us to do so only by the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us to draw near to you and to love you as we ought. In Jesus' name, amen.